Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you in association with Sportful. I am Joe Robinson. I'm joined as ever by James Spender. Good afternoon, Joseph. And on today's show, a carpenter from the Wirral, who also happens to be an Olympic gold medalist, a Tour de France yellow jersey wearer, an hour record holder, and a man hell-bent on making cycling a normal form of transport in Great Britain. That is Mr. Chris Boardman. But before we get on to what is quite simply a fascinating chat, some of the good and the bad for me and James in the world of cycling over the last fortnight. Hello, James. How are you? Good to see you again. Um, something you like, something you don't like, please and thank you. Well, I'll tell you what I don't like. I've had, and I've discussed this with lots of cycling friends recently, actually, um, is uh, the proliferation of punctures. We get visited by the puncture fairy a couple of times a year, don't we? We know it always comes in clusters, uh, a little bit like berries on a tree. They're like buses. They are like buses. Punctures are like buses, only slightly smaller. Um, but there's a lot of punctures going around, and my take on it is this. It is, it's a lockdown-induced situation because you've had a lot of people drinking on the streets. You've got a lot of people right. going out, okay. going to parks, going to benches, whatever, leaving. They're not smashing the bottles. They're not wantonly tossing them on the floor, although some of them might be in frustration at everything that's going on. But there's yeah. bottles around the streets. They invariably get smashed and they end up as glass. All of my punches have been glass. And then t'other day, I've got this little fold-up bike, which incidentally is something that I am very much enjoying. Is uh, you know, It's a bit pimped out. It's a carbon fibre folding bike by a company called Get Me, obviously, working for a cycling magazine. Got to give it back tomorrow, so, you know, it's not all roses. But uh, it's called an Austin Atto. And it folds up relatively small, a bit like a Brompton, but it weighs not much more than a UCI legal road bike. And it's got disc brakes. It's got disc brakes, carbon wheels. It's got an Shimano Alfine hub. So it's got 11 internal gears, 9 internal gears, and a belt drive. So if you say what, because it's so quiet, you can pedal away from people going, and they think you're on an electric bike because they can't hear the drivetrain. It's got great acceleration because of the little wheels. But anyway, I thought Schwalbe Marathon tyres, you can can run a rhinoceros into those things and they won't puncture. Yeah, but you also can't ride over glass. And I got a flat on the way to the gym the other day and... um, as small as it folds up, you can't put that thing in your rucksack, so I had to push it home. And there's nothing that looks more... The first most stupid-looking person is me riding the thing. The second most stupid-looking person is me pushing a flat-wheeled folder bike, looking slightly miserable. Oh, yeah, and just throw this last one out there, sports massage. I've been back on getting some sports massage um, now these things are reopened. And I had some physio problems years ago. Saw a guy, pretty high-profile dude at the time for a magazine feature. He said to me... The best thing that you can do that isn't doping, the second best thing to illegal doping is massage. Get on the massage. And that is why James is a serial EPO taker. Exactly. In between. Because he only takes the best. Only take, yeah. (laughs) EPO and some deep tissue thumbing. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, sorry. Okay, Joseph, tell me, what do you like in the world of cycling? In no particular order. Things I'm liking over the last two weeks, I made a list. You made a list? Uh, Beef and mustard crisps at the pub. Ooh. Bernard Edwards from Chic, the bass player. The bass line he wrote for the Sister Sledge hit, Thinking of You, which I think could be one of the best bass lines in pop Mm -hmm. history. 
uh, X Files on Amazon Prime. Rewatching that, incredible. Uh, but the only cycling related thing that I've enjoyed in the last two weeks is uh, Embrication. Yes. Uh, so I got sent some creams from a brand called Premax, and they do sort of like chamois creams. Ooh. They do like a weather defense sort of face cream, uh, suntan lotion for cyclists. But one of them in the pack was a warm up cream. Um, and I'll, I'll explain. This is how they describe it on the website, just so you, just so you sort of know, James. An invigorating cream formulated for sport and exercise combining five key elements. Sodium bicarbonate, magnesium, caffeine, a mild warmth, and a blend of natural ingredients to protect the skin from the rain, wind and cold. I'm sold. Yeah, it's absolutely delightful. So I've been doing a little bit of sort of early morning rides. The sun has been greeting us earlier in the morning. So I like to go out before work so I can start my day in a much more sort of positive fashion. Um, but it's not quite it's not quite warm enough to just wear bib shorts at the moment because it's still about sort of seven eight degrees, at like, <laughs> you know seven o'clock in the morning. So just a little bit of embrocation cream on. I also put on a bit if I'm going for like an early morning run. I've also been using it at football, and it you know it makes you feel lovely inside and out. A little bit of a tingle. Um, I don't know if it actually. I mean, it does make you feel a little bit warmer. I don't think it, it makes much of a difference. I just like how it smells and how it feels. Um, so yeah, that's pre-max. So that's that's something I've been liking. Uh, Twenty pounds for a hundred gram little little squeezer, which sounds expensive. Woof! That does sound expensive. Two hundred pounds a kilo. Yeah, if you look at it like that, good maths. Um, but I'm enjoying that. Um, but some things I don't like for you, James. Now, and again, in no particular order, uh, the finale to Line of Duty. That was on the other week. Didn't watch it. Don't watch it. Terrible. Uh, the fact that my favourite manufacturer of beef and mustard crisps, Brannigans, Brannigans, yes, discontinued their beef and mustard flavour last year. What? Why? On what grounds? I also don't like it when non-stick kitchenware isn't non-stick, and then I also hate it when I get embrocation in my eyes, which is what I did. Which is <laughs> yeah. I mean, embrocation on your eyes, and also. Uh... The other thing I'd say is never kind of put it on your legs when you get out of the shower and then bend down to pick up a towel. Yeah. Because embrocation can get elsewhere. See, I'm a clumsy fumbler, James. And a clumsy fumbler? Clum- clumsy fumbler. And um, I've, <laughs> I've, anyone who knows me, uh, my, my dear other half has had to deal with me many, many times having made something in the kitchen using chilli peppers and then itching my eyes and then spending half an hour with my eye under a tap. It happens more frequently than i should have let on and at the moment especially with as our dear listeners know i suffer quite badly with hay fever you can probably hear it in the back of my voice Um, okay i put some embrocation on the other day uh then i had a bit of the sneezes a bit of the itchy eyes and i hadn't fully got the embrocation off the fingers so i gave a little itch to the inside of the eye and lo and behold the invigorating cream formulated from Key elements such as sodium bicarbonate and magnesium ended up on my eyeball. Goodness me. And then I had a stingy eye for a couple of hours. The clumsy fumbler with the stingy eye. You, the clumsy fumbler. That could be a series of children's books written by Chris Hoy. <laughs> but, no, embrocation though. No, I'm up, I'm, I'm up for that. It is a, it's a very useful thing. It just reminds me of I'm playing um, Sunday League football as an 11-year-old and Stevie Dean's granddad had this embryo. He was the sort of man who would stand by the touchline, like win, rain or shine every single game. His beard was white, but was stained a tobacco nicotine orange. Um, and he used to come to the changing room 
on those winter matches where the grass was frozen uh, and everyone was kind of crying and you'd come and slap our legs to like reinvigorate them, which I'm not really sure if should have been doing and if it, there's any medical science behind that. But he had this um, jar of tiger balm that it looked like he'd rescued from the Titanic before it went down. You know, ancient thing. And the stuff was so potent, he had to put it on with a tiny pair of matchsticks that he used to light his pipe with. He couldn't touch it with a human hand. It could only go on 11-year-old boys' knees. Well, on that slightly weird note, um, I think we should get on to Chris Boardman because it's a long interview, but it's a good interview. And we cover a lot of ground. Um, so I want you to all enjoy it, listener. <laughs> I want you to all enjoy it, listener. <laughs> yeah, they will. So I think the best place to start, Chris, and we'll roll it in here, is that 2020 was probably a year that all three of us have never seen in our life as, you know, cyclists. And it was probably the biggest boom year for the bicycle, because when the pandemic hit and we were told to stay at home from March and gyms were shut and you couldn't play football or rugby anymore, we were told all we can do is go outside for essential services and to exercise. And with that, thousands if not millions took to the bike in a way that we've never seen before as a country and I did some digging and in April to June last year bicycle sales were 63% up year on year Um, during that same time the government found that bicycle traffic was up 65% year on year Um, and what I found most interesting was that sales of bikes were strongest for under a grand which suggests that it's being used for transport and for people new to the sport not sort of your sort of usual clientele for road cycling, if you'd say that. And e-bike sales are up a lot as well. The pandemic has clearly started something in the British public around the bicycle and refound their love for it. But my question to you is, is this a permanent change or is this just something that's been reactionary to a pandemic and is about to go back to normal as our life goes back to normal? Well, essentially, we... Um... It was an unprecedented experience, and there's there's quite a lot of uh, superlatives and and uh, melodramatic words that that we could use to describe it, and all would be apt, I think. I mean, and I'll kick off with one: we effectively turned off global traffic. Um, that's never happened before. I don't think a war has ever made that happen before. Now the circumstances were horrific. People have lost uh, people have lost friends and loved ones. Uh, I've lost family members and friends to COVID. But we'd be crazy to ignore what's just happened and not to try and keep hold of the things that uh, that some people have, as you've just alluded to, discovered and rediscovered. So traffic dropped uh, between 60 and 90 percent. Uh, all modes of traffic, in fact, dropped between 60 and 90 percent, except for cycling. Cycling actually went up pre-COVID levels, as you alluded to, uh, and in some places up to 300%. We've been seeing a regular 70% increase um, in Greater Manchester. Um, and, And everybody did that because we got our streets back and people felt safe. So we have, for the first time, people who would never dream of considering themselves a cyclist. Um, They had empathy. They had an experience that we could all share and they liked it. And that is something to absolutely keep hold of. And um, and that's what we intend to do. And of course, when you look at the next crisis, 
the climate crisis, which is much bigger than this one uh, looming in the background. We know it's the answer to both of those things and health and everything else in between. Um, and government policy in this one area is unbelievably strong. So we will never have an opportunity like we have like, right now. I thought last year we missed it because everything had to happen so quickly to capitalise on that good weather behaviour change period that we had when everybody rode a bike and wanted to ride a bike. And as we moved into the autumn and tried to do some things too quickly uh, and it caused a lot of strife for people who are already under stress, then, sorry, I've got a dog nudging my hand. Stop it. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I thought we'd lost the opportunity, but I didn't consider that a year on we'd be here again. So it remains, it's aligned with government policy and uh, I think it's incredibly exciting and quite quite stressful. Yeah. This is going to be a finite period of time where, um, and it, we won't get this again, you know, we won't get it. In fact, it's going to be worse. It's already starting where we will, people avoiding public transport, more people are in cars and there'll be an even bigger fight for road space. Mm. That was quite a long-winded answer, but there you go. That's a, that's a great answer. So, so for people that um, might not know this, you were appointed by Andy Burnham um, as the uh, Greater Manchester Cycling and Walking Commissioner in 2017. So that's that's your literal local stomping and cycling patch. So, what did you see um, anecdotally in your area um, as a kind of reaction on an infrastructure council governmental level to keep that momentum going? And of those things, what do you think has been successful? Well, everybody's on a massive learning curve, something of a cliche. Um, and I think some things were very well intentioned and didn't work out. Um, but chunks of it did, and we need to capture that. So I'm, I'm, I'm referring explicitly to the emergency active travel measures when they said, right, you know, we've got 25% of people in our, in our region, uh, or mm. attached to about 30% in Greater Manchester, don't own a car. Um, and a lot of those people are key workers. So they were relying on public transport services that were suddenly curtailed and often stopped at night for shift workers. So we weren't creating emergency bike lanes. We were creating active travel corridors, transport corridors for people who don't have a car. And there's no space on public transport because they're not allowed to get close or um or, or the train or the bus isn't even there. So and I think that changed the framing slightly. What? we didn't anticipate or we couldn't anticipate is people were just already stressed and reacted to change, you know, a lane being taken out or, or something being done. And they reacted to that where it worked really well. The emergency measures is where we accelerated things that were going to happen anyway. Mm. And you also, you need to learn to react to the situation, read it, understand it, um, empathize with the people understand their position what's upsetting them and also look for the opportunities so for example businesses now in the last few weeks are clamoring to give away car parking space something they'd have fought tooth and nail for outside of their shops and mm. restaurants and right now they're just bin all of that in a second if you let them put tables out so they can so they can prosper um and right now those those all those space that space has been taken that street space has been reclaimed for people and that I think will 
there'll be a reluctance to give it back again. So we've sort of shuffled forward a couple of steps. We've taken a bit more ground, if you want to put it in that rather adversarial way, that I don't think we'll give back. In towns and cities, uh, so in Greater Manchester, the uh, northern quarter of Greater Manchester, which has wanted to pedestrianise for a long time, they allowed all the restaurants to come out onto the streets last summer. They've done it again now. And, and those, those are now becoming permanent. So those things are, are fantastic. And we bolt active travel onto that. We talk to the businesses, which we are right now, get them on, on video saying, what do you prefer? Do you want to go back? Um, and so, so we are reshaping it. But it's very fragile and potentially very short-lived. You know, we, we know we are weeks away from being able to mingle and go indoors. And so there'll be a push to go back to normal. But we can't, you know, if nothing else, because of the climate change, we have to change the way we travel. So is the next step is not so much the the physical implementation of like a lower traffic neighbourhood, which you have in London, and is very, it's not very controversial, there's quite a, a loud minority, and implementing bike lanes through city centres, whether that be Chelmsford or Bradford. Is it now working on convincing people and in working in terms of mindset because it feels like, for instance, when the northern quarter of Manchester or Soho reclaimed the streets for restaurants, people could get on board with that because 95% of people benefit from that. Whereas at the moment, a bicycle lane isn't going, isn't benefiting 95% of people. It could potentially in the future, and it, hopefully it will. But at the moment, there's still, I would say, at least 50% of people that are like, that bicycle lane will have no direct impact on me. So therefore, my that natural response is to dislike it and is that your as a working in government working with a a local authority is that your next step is convincing those people that it can be a benefit to them there's a few elements of this i mean very highbrow i don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the change curve or the morning curve uh, but it, it, it's applicable to any moment of change in people's lives, be it a job, um, be it a bereavement, whatever it is. And you have um, denial. <clears throat> it's not happening. Um, I can't, I won't accept it. And then you have blame, blame someone else, blame self, acceptance. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Acceptance, change. And we are, as a nation, have looked at active travel and climate change. And we've done the denial and we're doing the blame. And we've started to look at recycling things that we could do. Um, and we've accepted now that this is a real problem. Um, and now we're starting to think about, well, OK, what what could we do? And so we're just moving into that period where people are willing to accept change. And we've accelerated that in the last in the last 12 months. So this is the moment, really. And what people really need is a vision of what's it like on the other side. And they need to be sold that, as a car industry does. Every advert for a car shows you an empty road and people having a lovely time. They don't sell you the car. They, they sell you a lifestyle. They sell you an emotion. And we've mm-hmm. been appalling at that. I think it, we, we've always looked at the facts. And facts don't move many people. Anybody who's moved by facts is already doing it. So mm-hmm. most people, are, as you've just alluded to, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Um, if I can't relate to it, then it's a threat. So we need to make sure that there's more in it for people and and in a language that they choose. This has been a huge part of the job in Greater Manchester. 
So there's, there's, there's several things that you can do. You can say, right, we can do this before everybody else, which gives people a sense of pride and ownership. And we're doing something special. I'm part of something special. You make it um, about children uh, because people can, can empathize with things that are about their kids, their kids' health, their kids' rights. Uh, and that's, you know, that's not cynical. It's actually a fact. But you focus in on that fact that you can all relate to. You focus in on money. If actually, if I don't drive my car uh, for this period of time and ride it instead, I've got enough money for a family weekend away every year. So something that you you done during the pandemic, you sold your Audi A5, didn't you? Yeah, I got rid of my car just well over a year ago now, so it's not been a superb test. Um, but pre-lockdown, I'd already decided I'd um, I'd do a trial run and just not use it for a couple of months. Um, and it's not easy. And that's, that's actually mm. the point. It isn't easy. I'm not going to go, oh, it was fantastic. I haven't missed it. Uh, have I've missed the convenience of it uh, a lot of the time that spontaneity it's gone because my other options are shit and you know uh, and and that we have to recognize that uh, the, the one element I didn't mention is and you can see it in places like Waltham Forest you are not going to keep people happy you mentioned the vocal minority and they're very vocal very loud take no responsibility for the outcomes if they win but they are, and they are influencing things a lot because they're standing up. They're, they're about fear, fear mm. of change. And that resonates with everybody. So there will be, that will remain. You have one and a half years of that, that politicians have got to push through. But after that, I guarantee you on the other side, you will be just as upset if we say we're going to take it away. And the beauty of this moment buried in all the other stuff that we may or may not agree with um, is you've got people at the top. You've got a senior transport advisor, very, very influential, Andrew Gilligan and Boris Johnson, who've been through this in London Mm. and they genuinely believe in it and they want to see it through and they will push it. And that's, that's why this is a unique moment. That's a good point because James and I both live in London and we've used the Cycle Super Highway along Embankment, which I think every single columnist in certain newspapers campaigned for about 18 months to have it ripped up from Karen Brady through to Nick Ferrari. And now nobody says a word about it because it's been there for two, three years and now it's just accepted. Like you said, people have just learned to live with it. And now, and again, as you said, I think if, you know, he won't because he's losing active travel if Sadiq Khan tomorrow after being elected if he does get elected said I'm going to get rid of that cycle super highway the uproar would be 10 times of what it was when it got him sort of built I would I believe to be fair. Sadiq Khan was nervous um, because he wasn't uh, a natural for active travel Mm. but the people around him said well actually this has got nothing to do with active travel this is about moving people you've got the equivalent of a tube train full of people coming into london every week and not leaving you know so you have got a finite amount of space if you back anything else you're screwed even if you hate cycling this is your least shit option for managing your streets i think which i personally think should be a t-shirt your least shit option um and it is for people who've got like a stack of problems and not interested in this this is the, the the most palatable way to deal with them, even if you don't like it. But I think uh, embankment is a perfect example of fight, bite, fight, and no one thanks you for it later. Mm. Um, and, and you just got to live with that. 
So that's, you know, you hear the term political courage. Well, that's what it means, you know, doing the right thing, believing in it. But the upside is on the other side, people do support it um, when actually pushed about it. And that, I think, is going to come out in the mayoral elections. And I think even conservative candidates will realise this isn't a campaigning point. It's actually a vote loser now. So forget all the noise in the papers uh, and people who are trying to manipulate opinion and blowing it out of proportion, sensationalism. The majority of people want this. All the polls have always said it. And the majority of people vote. Um, so we'll see. We'll see on Saturday. But um, I'm pretty confident that campaigning against this stuff is a vote loser. Um, and that's going to be really helpful. So you've got to think really strategically, really big and, you know, uh, uh, it's quite interesting, isn't it, that nobody's been whipping the Conservative candidates to get behind government policy. They're just leaving them out there um, mm. uh, because it might be quite useful next week. Yeah. How do you think, though, because from my um, perception of things changing uh, in the kind of peaks and troughs of who's using cycle lanes over like the last year, 18 months, suddenly when things you know opened up in inverted commas over the summer and people were going back into some places of work, lots more people in cycle lanes but they're all adults, they're clearly single, um, or, you know, they're traveling in a singular fashion. And yes, lots of early adopters or people that have refound it, but the traffic was low, then boom, schools reopened. And suddenly I live, you know, I commute into central London, but my local area is very densely populated with families and schools. And suddenly those mild tailbacks were happening again, at, strangely enough, when the when the bell was just about to sound. So how do we, how do we, and you're, you're a father as well, like how, how do we, talk to families and get them to find an alternative way of getting their kids to school? Well, schools, as we talked about earlier, are the focal point for me. They're, they're the catalyst for emotional change because people get it. And yeah, that's the point of stress in people's day. Uh, and I'm sure you've experienced the emotional change on the road at rush hours as yeah. well. There's that stress and aggression. And yeah. When you're driving a car, um, you are immune from consequences by and large for your behavior towards other people and you're angry through the window but there's no there's no recourse so people behave really badly and there's going to have to be a degree political there's no way of getting around political courage and when the political courage is at the top it can set the rules of how other people deal with it so i'm going slightly broader as to your question um if government policy for example says uh, we're not having traffic around any schools in your area, but it's up to you how you achieve it. But your cash settlements are actually attached to whether you actually do that for all of your transport. So that kind of thing is mm. how you have big government tells um, local government what to do. And local government deals with local councillors by going, it's not our fault. We've been told to do it by upstairs. That kind of thing works really well, I think. And mm. we've seen a lot of evidence of that. So, I think schools are a focal point. School streets look like um, a, a tiny thing where we go, oh, we're just going to close the street for a few hours. But you, you, you've moved people quite quickly towards something. They go, actually, this is better, isn't it? Yeah, it's nicer. And actually, the traffic isn't rammed the other side of those school streets. And more because more people can actually walk that now because it's mm. viable for them, those less than, uh, less than one mile journeys. So... Those activities, I think I'm really interested in. I mean, number one is you make safe space. Fight for the safe space and be confident that people will use it because they do, particularly if it's the easiest solution. Um, uh, and I, I think 
I think that's that's key, really. Make the safe space. And if you need to do that piecemeal, if you need to do it, create lots of little examples. Because I think that's the key is you need to make examples that people can relate to uh, and do it in my area. Because if you talk about Cambridge, not interested. Oxford, yeah, yeah, not, not interested. Um, it's got to be here where I am. So mm. if it's around a school and no store or a local low traffic neighborhood, uh, even Waltham Forest, the rest of the country, not interested, um, can't relate to it. But the more you make, then they start to join up and then it starts to gather steam and then we'll flip the other way. Does that does that suggest that it needs to be some form of government policy where it is implemented nationwide at once? So if it's if it's something that if it's something that is applicable to every school and or every area around the school. I think you I mean there's there's several bits. I mean you, you're deep into human psychology here, it's social science, it's uh, it's actually not transport, it's about horrible business phrase uh, change management that's what it is so there's a couple of ways that it's a scary thing it's the unknown so how do we manage it so i mean i think there's so many things i want to talk about all at once really but so i would say in three years time there can't be any traffic around schools for example any schools Mm. so you give people time to adjust and you tell people where it's going it's a bit like saying right we're going to stop selling petrol cars um in a decade so everybody has time to adjust and the market settles out and there'll be some pain. Suddenly all those cars have gone down in value because they're only going to last a few years and then it's gone. Mm. So but there'll be some pain, but uh, you give people adjustment time and you might go, oh, yeah, but we need to do it quickly. Well, that kind of is quickly. So long as you, the point is you've made a decision now that might not be enacted for a few years, but you've made the decision. You don't it, it, saying by 2050, we'll be carbon neutral. Well, it's just words, unless you actually know what you're going to do in year one, what you're going to mm-hmm. do in year two. So those kind of decisions, I think I really like those. No traffic neighborhoods, possibly our mistake was to package them up and give them a name because then we had something to aim at. But all yeah. it is, is traffic management. You know, it's, it, you're talking to cul-de-sacs and, and you know, real normal stuff that's everywhere, has been everywhere for you know decades and decades. But now we've given it a name and packaged it as taking something away from you, taking a right away. And you've got several big newspapers, for whatever reason, want to uh, go for that and sensationalise that, and it, and it helps it gather gather pace. So I've no idea what question I was answering there, but um, <laughs> I've, I've gone off onto another one. You mentioned um, a couple of key, key phrases and words there that stuck out to me, one of them being political courage, um, and the other one being pain, and the idea that, change doesn't come without pain how much faith do you have in that political courage and I don't know if I'm quite on the same page as you on this but I'm to my mind one of the things that pops into my head is the way in which we pretty much overnight just said we're going to charge five or ten pence for a plastic bag and lo and behold now we're not going to have those plastic bags that just happened there was no oh we're going to do that in 2050 they just did that overnight people grumbled a bit and cracked on and a better example maybe is the smoking ban which you know we saw six months of reactions in the news. We saw people turning their pubs into inverted commas bedrooms so that they could then have people still smoking in them. There's an old lady with a standard lamp and moved her bed into a local pub. But people soon sucked it up, and that's like you know people are seriously addicted to these things. And it strikes me that if people are told to just shut up and get on with it, sometimes they do. A lot of the time they do, but that does take that strong leadership and you know the ability to know that the people you're governing might turn around and temporarily, if not forever, hate you. Do you believe, do you have faith in the political courage 
in our system to do what's what's needed to be done now. There's about three answers wrapped up in this. I'm probably <laughs> going to lose my thread again. You might need to pull me back. So, I mean, I think smoking is probably the best one uh, because look at how ludicrous it is very quickly looking backwards that this yeah. was all okay. And look at the mountains of evidence that said you shouldn't be doing this. And we still, we carried on doing it for decades and decades. Um, so it shows human behavior. So the change curve that I mentioned it's definitely worth just just Google that the change curve because it governs everything, governs human behavior. It's how our intellect butts up against our instinct, and actually we work on instinct, not intellect. Um, that's that's how we're built. So you have to manage that. So you're you're talking about people who are trying to resist change. In terms of political courage, it's absolutely there, but it's there in such small quantities at the moment. Two or three people in government really that are driving something um that it's very fragile so we need to to take as much ground as we can to bolster this to make it stronger to make sure the evidence is heard in a matter of months you know we've mm. got a real small amount of time to do it there's lots of people who will support but they won't lead they'll follow and that's heartening you know it's, you could say it's a bit sad i personally think it's heartening i know being immersed in in local and national government that those people are all there they're ready to follow and if somebody says we're going this way and they take the risk they'll get on board because they've got political cover which is another word that isn't used but is essential politicians need to feel secure their job lasts three to four years mm -hmm. and it's governed by whether people like them or don't like them that's the reality of it so if you've got a local councillor who is got somebody up in arms because you're proposing taking out the parking outside his shops uh, and he's got 60 people who are really angry at them that person depends on a couple of hundred votes to keep the job and these are people they need to see every day and the pressure on them to to comply with the wishes of the people around them who they're supposed to represent whether they whether they're right or not is huge so we can't expect that local councillor to take that decision but if that local councillor's boss is saying Listen, our transport settlement depends on that happening. So mm. you have to do it. He can go to those people and say, listen, I completely agree with you. Uh, it's not my fault, but we've got to. So he can do the job. So that political cover goes all the way up. So when you've got government who said, you've got to do this, don't care how you do it, but you're not getting the money for your trams, your trains and your buses unless you do, off you go. The people in the middle might go, oh, this is terrible. But really, they go, yeah, this is great. I could actually get on and do this now. So it's uh, it's quite Machiavellian in, in, in some ways, but uh, but that's how it works. So how important is it that at the very top of the tree at the moment, we've probably, in all, in all seriousness, got our most serious prime minister on cycling ever. We've, we've got a cyclist in number 10. How 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 serious do you think him and his uh, Boris Johnson and his government is about cycling? I think Boris Johnson is deadly serious. He is utterly passionate about this. Uh, in fact, I know he is, and it's it's critical. I think is the word that I would use to change the culture of a nation. Your PM has got to lead it. And you know, that's the one person that can affect change. So you can see it's precarious at the moment. There's an awful lot going on in wider politics. And we might not, we might not agree on, on huge swathes of stuff, but on this one thing, it is utterly logic driven. It is sustainable for the future. And if you want to stick a flag in anything, 
to say Britain's leading the way, this is the one. And that way you may very well be able to appeal to the patriotism side of things as well um, and show, listen, we, we led an industrial revolution. We can genuinely lead a green revolution. We're not the best in the world, but we could be the first car-centric nation to show the rest of the world how you change at pace. Um, and that makes you feel good, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, and I don't think anybody, I think you could make a nation feel proud about that. So it's the same stuff whether you're dealing with one individual, a city region, or a country. It's the same human emotions that govern it. And if people have got to feel good about it, they've got to feel there's something in it for them. Um, and, and it has to be talked about in a language that the audience talks in, not the mm. one I want to tell them. I don't, telling them about evidence, not interested. Tell me about emotions. Tell me about how I feel and, and, and what I'm going to get out of it in terms of money or my family or easy and, and then we're on a winner. So how, within that, do you think one of the strategies um, is it kind of engaging with, for want of a better word, the influencers in our society, the people that aren't the politicians, um, but the people that can influence or people are galvanised with a shared instinct to someone that has five million followers on uh, on Instagram. And, and we've seen the likes of Mo Salah and Mark Wright and even on BBC Breakfast the other day, Dan Walker, um, cycling electric Brompton around the studio. How important is it for us to engage or for people in your position and for government to engage those people who are more kind of people of the people to start showing the way in terms of alternative transport? I think it's very helpful. And you'll get um, people jumping on the bandwagon as it becomes trendy and it will mm -hmm. gather pace. So, but they might need to feel more comfortable about it if you talk about it in a different way. So it's, it's quite... Um, it's a lot safer for people to talk about supporting action on climate change because supporting things for bikes is supporting action on climate change. You know, that mm -hmm. that's it. That's what this action actually looks like. So a lot of people feel much more comfortable about that. So you think about what push on the open doors is another bit of a cliche. Climate change is one right now. We've all got to address it. We're all, we're all broadly agreeing that it's happening. It's bad. It's something we should stop. Uh, and then we forget about that when we're talking about parking outside my house. So we need to link those things together. But bringing in influencers who can address it, it doesn't mean they have to be talking about the same topic. It can be mm. talking about something else. And I think it's really important that when I mentioned language, language isn't just uh, verbal. It's also visual. So, you know, you, you'll know I've been battered for years for having the audacity to ride a bike in normal clothes. Um, <laughs> this is so important. You know, it's so important that it looks like a normal, pleasant activity that normal people do doing normal things. Um, and that kind of stuff's really important. I did a piece years ago with Louise Minchin um, about looking at the cycle infrastructure. It must have gone nearly 10 years ago now in Greater Manchester. And she had a, a, an image in her mind of we're doing a cycling piece. So she turns up with full high-vis helmets and everything. And I just rocked up off the train in my normal clothes. Um, and... Because we were now a gang of two, uh, she felt really uncomfortable being dressed in high vis, and she felt a bit daft. And that, that's peer pressure, you know, mm. unintentional peer pressure. I didn't, <laughs> uh, I didn't, but I got absolutely battered uh, as I did for last year's Tour de France piece on the when I, I did a, a little sequence on the pandemic, you know, the COVID effect when when cycling went viral. 
Um, and it was a, it was a nice piece. And there was huge amounts in there of looking at around the world at Dutch cycling and, you know, kids going to school, just tootling along on bikes and fantastic. And people were just focused on the fact that I wasn't wearing a helmet. And uh, they've been yeah. so indoctrinated now that they couldn't hear anything else, couldn't get past it. But that's the cycling audience. The bloke on the street, you showed them something that was oh, actually looked quite pleasant. So unintended consequences is probably the toughest thing I have to deal with because you, you focus in on something that makes complete sense. But then you stand back and go, oh, shit, if I go that route, I'm, I've got a massive net loss. So I can't do that. But that takes time to explain. And people will give you 20 seconds, 20 to 30 seconds. The time it takes to read, what is it now, 200 characters or whatever it is on Twitter. Mm. But that they're the rules now. You know, yeah. they're the rules and they're the ones that we, we have to comply to. How, uh, how unintended or intended were the consequences of you going to work in your local bike shop during the pandemic and assembling bikes? Well, I didn't tell anyone. Um, I mean, I think it just, that was just a very personal thing that I wanted to do something productive. And the first few months of lockdown was there was a lot of people highly stressed um, and had nowhere to put it. You can't go and help because you're not allowed to help because you're not allowed to see anybody else. And there was, um, you know, I watched something developed where suddenly key workers needed transport. So I, I gave away every bike in the in the garage. But and in fact, I shouldn't be talking about it now. Um, but I did it for personal reasons. And then it, it you know, became known. Um, no, but I'm, you know, maybe that, that kind of stuff helps. Um, I don't know. But, you know, they, I know that they furloughed everybody because they were scared. They never knew that there was going to be a bike boom. We have to remember that just, you know, just over a year ago. We didn't know there was going to be a bike boom. We saw massive threats to businesses who've been stopped from trading, send everybody home. And suddenly everybody wants the bike repaired. Mm. So it was just a way of joining in, really. Does that mean that there's hundreds of people riding around how, uh, Manchester now with bikes that have been aero optimised? from their local Halford store because the old Chris Boardman came out. Put it that way. They've got bikes uh, with brakes that function. And giving away your old bikes, does that mean that there's a nurse or a doctor somewhere in Manchester commuting on a Lotus track bike? There's a local nurse who was uh, amazingly... Uh, so I live on the Wirral, Principality of Wirral. So, uh, you know, not in Manchester. I'm sort of about 30 miles away. So we have one of the old beaching lines, you know, the disused railway lines, which have become, you know, public mm. path. And it pretty much runs from where I am to Chester, which is 11 miles away. Um, there was a local nurse who, um, and he was making that journey, but the trains had stopped. So he was stuck. I can't remember how we got in touch. I think it was probably by social media. So I, I got um, an electric bike that we had and, and, and that actually made it a viable commute for him over 11 miles. And he used that throughout. He got COVID actually, he was really sick. Um, but to my knowledge, he's still using it now, which is nice, you know, which is nice. Yeah, in a uh, in a in a roundabout way, you just reminded me, Chris, that I mean, this has nothing to do with the pandemic, but uh, at another point in time, you actually lent me a bike, which I do genuinely believe belonged to you because I'm absolutely so sure there's there, there were no Borman SLRs at the time with Zip 202s in them, and I saw you riding it on a piece when you were doing a recce on the Tour de France stage. Um, long story short, we do these big ride things for the magazine, for Cyclist Magazine. And I was stuck for a bike and it was the only one in the size. And they said, oh, we'll pull it out of Chris's garage. He won't mind lending it to you. So lo and behold, rock up in Greece. It doesn't quite fit in the back of the guy's cab. It's in a bike box, mind you. But we're driving around at breakneck speed, go over a bump. The whole bike box jumps out of the car. That's the first thing. It kind of opens up on the road. The bike's fine. 
later on, I'm assembling it at 3am in the morning, bust the seat collar. And then, uh, so luckily I get a, a spare seat collar. Then on the day of the ride, it rains. And you know the way the oil leaches out of tarmac and we're going down some switchbacks. Then I crashed the thing. So I'm really, really sorry. It went through the mill. I managed to source some uh, some spare levers from SRAM. So I'm not sure if you ever knew, but I thought I might take the opportunity to... Uh, Didn't know it taking such a batter in there. <laughs> I think my dad's riding around on that now. <laughs> there we go. He's 82. He's kind of like the, be- the best equipped octogenarian you've ever met. <laughs> but I think that's, um, you know, it kind of leads into um, what we'd also like to talk to you about, which is you're, you, know, you, are, you are a man of... of of many things to many people, but one of them once upon a time was Britain's great hope and great success in cycling. And while we're talking about a boom, um, you know, there was a wave in 2012 kicked off with Brad and there's stuff now happening with the pandemic. But back in the nineties, you were great British cycling. Um, in fact, in 1994, that was the, the first time I turned out to watch Tour de France. You came to Portsmouth where I lived and we waited at the side of the road just to see you uh, which I'm told by my parents you were in there somewhere, riding, riding for Gan. Um, yeah, I mean, look, looking back on that, I mean, uh, did you, how, how did, you, you have been in your 20s, how, how did you shoulder that kind of responsibility? I think by being utterly selfish. <laughs> because that, that's what sports people are. And I don't mean that in a, in a, a derogatory way. They, you, that's what you're trained to be as an athlete. You're trained to put yourself first, think about yourself. It's all about your performance. Um, so I was just wrapped up in my own little world. Um, and the fact that there was lots of people watching was a lovely novelty. And uh, I, th- I didn't think of it as a responsibility because it wasn't a lot of it. You see, when you look backwards, I think as well. Um, and it was great leading the way and scary, um, scary in, in the, the scale of it and having to do things for the first time. But it was, it was novel. It wasn't a great time to be a bike rider, and it got worse and worse through the through the nineties until I just had enough and, and, and went home. But uh, to start with, to be able to arrive as a time trialist and go right, I've got this one thing that we are ahead of the world in racing mm. against the clock. We've bumped into to Lotus, or more specifically, an aerodynamicist at Lotus. We understood that bit of it. We understood the physiology with Peter Keane about specific training we had a language of training you know that people just didn't have you know there was multiple level one to four of training and power cranks when everyone else was going out for 40 hours a week because that's what you did as a pro and you just rode around slowly for 40 hours a week so we, we brought that and stole a march for a short period of time uh, before it all started getting skewed badly skewed by by drugs um and it was it was wonderful turning towards depressing <laughs> Uh, and then it was time to do something else. So it was it was fascinating. And the '92 Olympic Games, um, when I sat on the start line, you know, I was quite literally an unemployed carpenter with a wife and two kids and utterly no money. Uh, and the next four and a half minutes was going to change the rest of our life, or not, as the case may be. And that was quite intense. Uh, that was pretty intense. Um, and I, I was because of a psychologist, the name of John Sire, that I actually got through that moment because we'd just been chatting beforehand um, and he'd got me to realise where the focus should be, to cut a, a long, a fairly long story short. And I, and I can remember sitting on the bike at that moment and watching the, the seconds tick over on the digital clock, which in those days were numbers painted onto little metal flaps and it would turn out, I could hear it ticking, um, but it was a real moment. I just thought, right fuck it 
I'm just going to be the best that I can be. And when I've crossed the line, I'll have a look at the board and see what it's got me. And that was, um, that was a liberating experience to realise that all of that big stuff, to go back to your original question, had nothing to do with me. I couldn't affect it and it couldn't affect me. So my focus, as trite as it might sound, just needed to be on being as good as I could be. And then we'll see what happens. And it's a life lesson I use to this day, where it be in transport, be it whatever it might be, you can only do the best that you can. Um, and it's a liberating mindset and it's hard one to hold on to. That must have, in 92, going into that pursuit and the expectation that you'd have had on yourself and the team around you would have had, must feel so different to what someone would have had in, say, 2016 in Rio. Because what they had was this incredible system of British cycling and Team GB and the 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 work and support that we have known has gone into Team GB. But the, the, then there was the pressure of, in 2016, if you didn't come back with gold, you were a failure. And in 2012. Whereas for you, there wasn't any sort of expectation from the wider public as such because you know, cycling was, wasn't the sport it was. But you had that pressure of, if you didn't win, that could be it for your career as a cyclist because, you know, you can't, like some track cyclists, go back. I think you hit the nail on the head, really. Um, it, it's going to be intense and there's going to be pressure. Um, and you can just package it up however you like. You know, mm. so it's either trying to do this for the first time, this is it, this is the one opportunity is it going to work, which is immense. And everyone else has got a gold medal. If I don't get one, that's going to be really bad. You know, everybody's expecting it. That's intense. I've got five gold medals. You know, uh, I could be the first person to get six gold medals. That's intense. It's just it's same shit, different bucket. I find that I'm uh, swearing quite a lot in this podcast. You'll never swear as much as Brian Holm, so it's really fine. <laughs> really, you'll you'll never get close to that, so it's it's honestly fine. Um, when I've always been curious because, obviously, as a cyclist, I've done efforts, but I've never done an intense effort like a pursuit final at Olympic Games. And when you're on the track at Barcelona, and you're in, obviously, you're in a sort of a, a state where you're just completely focused. How, what are you thinking about? Does the mind ever wander? Do you ever start sort of because of how painful it is? And do you ever start thinking about, oh, no, I'm going to go down to the beach after in Barcelona. Or wouldn't it be nice to visit the new camp while I'm here? Or are you so in this state of nothing else is around you? I think there's di different people use different tools to deal with it. Um, so I can only speak from my own perspective. I know that in a sense, I've had two perspectives now because I've been, I've been highly honed athlete and, and fat middle-aged man. So I've, I've done, I've done both of those things. And I know that um, how people assume it is, oh, are you really going to suffer? Well, you don't actually, when you're a, when you're a top athlete, your body is trained to do something. You reach a limit and you can't do any more, but you don't suffer. In fact, you suffer less than somebody who's not particularly fit doing a sportif. Uh, yeah. and, and facing a climb, a climb because your body is attuned to it so it just reaches a limit so so be it an individual pursuit or, or be it an hour record you you reach a limit and then you sit on that line and wait till it's finished mm. so it's um it, it's not quite what people expect in terms of focus you never do 
you never do open it, you know, your dress rehearsal on opening night. So you're doing something that you've done hundreds and hundreds of times before, be it a standing start, be it pace management over, over the distance, whatever it might be. You've, you're not doing anything for the first time. So you are repeating a script as mm. it were. And the focus is on the script. It's not all the things that are external and the crowds and the situation and whether it's an Olympics or Tour de France, it's on following the script that you've set out and that you've rehearsed it. And so, you know, it works. Um, and, and I think that's different. So it's different from the outside looking in from the inside looking out. Um, and it's, it's not as actually as hard as people think it is. And in terms of letting your mind wander, some of the events, time trials specifically, and I didn't realize this was actually a skill until years later. Um, you, you can separate mind and body. So you, your body becomes so used to, or my body became so used to finding where Trump was and balancing that position that I could always set it to the task. And then I could go away and let think about other things. In fact, it was essential to think about other things because wow. this was really intensive and unpleasant. And, um, and so you could kill time, as it were. You learn to manage time differently. And that's probably something that's not talked about very often, but it's also a skill. And in the Tour de France, it was an essential, it is an essential, to be able to mentally switch off for periods of time. Um, mm. There's probably some kind of wartime analogy, really, between battles, but there's many hours of just riding along, killing the kilometres, waiting till it's time to go to work. And you have to be able to talk about banking and kids or whatever it might be with other people before you switch back on. Because you wouldn't be able to you wouldn't be able to survive if you just focused right. all the time, day in, day out. But you're talking about rehearsing that script, and that makes total sense. That's a good analogy. But then I can't begin to get my head around what it feels like then to have nailed your lines in front of an audience which you wouldn't have had any concept of either. I mean, obviously you were winning local TTs or national TTs and stuff like that before you were going off to the Olympics. But when you came back from Barcelona in 92, what reaction did you think you might get, if any? What reaction did you get from people where you lived? And um, what, at what point did you realise people had kind of gone slightly crazy for Chris Boardman in this country? It was, um, it was not something that I'd considered because hadn't dared think past the moment mm. hadn't dared think even to the final uh, and even sitting on a bike having set fastest times in qualifying and, and I think a world record or Olympic record I still didn't believe it was going to happen simply because that's people on telly win this stuff and I am an unemployed carpenter and I'm going to get found out soon you know the, other people win this stuff and only when it actually happened, and of course it was the first time for 70, 72, 73 years, did you realise that the people on the telly, this is who they are. Um, and I can't say it sank in. I mean, uh, particularly at the moment, it was going through a process and following that script, as it were. And then suddenly it was over, just, and somebody's putting a medal around your neck, and it was done. And I'd seen people jumping up and down and in tears on the podium. And that looked great and quite fancied a piece of that. Uh, and I was just stunned. <laughs> and it lasted for weeks and weeks. So when I got home, uh, was the first time, because we were in the Olympic bubble. And, every, you know, press and can't get near you. And everything's quite, quite uh, very well managed. So when we got home and there's loads of people at the, at the airport and there's a car to take you home, um, that was... 
that was the first time it was really big. And I'm still an unemployed carpenter dealing with this stuff. It was like Mike Bassett, England manager. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It was, it was the same kind of stuff. They just thrust into this world and going with it. But um, And as I said, we had no money. And then I got offered £3,000 worth of Asda vouchers to go and stand outside a shop or do something. And when you've got no money, that's just unbelievable. You know, that's <laughs> my shopping for a year. You know, it's, it was incredible. But we got we drove to Hoylake, um, um, where I lived, and the whole village, every shop window had displays in because it had taken a few days to gather pace, and this was the first gold medal. It was it maximised the experience, and it was everywhere. And we turned into the road, and we live in our little terraced house and full of people, um, and I really didn't like it. I didn't like it at all because this is my home now and I want to turn this off and I couldn't. Um, so that was quite a culture shock that that wasn't pleasant. But in the evening, they all, I've told this story before, they all kind of went home and it went out and down the end of our road is the dolphin chippy. And uh, I walked down to the chippy and Ming, the guy behind the, uh, the counter was there and it was, uh, it was it was fountain seed from Ocean's Eleven. And he went, right, right, right. Add a portion of chips, please. And uh, just quiet, just silent, you know, doing that. Slides them across the counter. And he went, no, it's okay. And that's when I knew I'd made it. Free chips from the dolphin. <laughs> I only, only one portion of free chips. One gold medal, one portion of chips. It was very high standards at the dolphin. <laughs> So what did, uh, things like that stick but on the whole it took months and months to, to settle in and it was probably that winter really when I was riding along the seawall to meet some other people where we were and it was silent because it was really early in the morning and there's a jogger coming the other way and I went past him and then just heard somebody shouting and I turned round and he was jumping up and down because this normal guy knew who I was and that was uh, that was quite a shock that was when, you know, and, and I thought it'd all be over three or four months. It's all done. And quarter of a century later, it's, uh, we're still going. Well, that's, that's the thing you see. So what, so number one, first question, what did Ming give you when you broke the hour record in 1993 from the Dolphin Chippy? I can't remember. <laughs> but yeah, without a doubt, I would have been in there. And do you think, I mean, in terms of the chronology. I don't um, think he recognised our records, actually. I think he's, he only dealt in golds. So yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't Obviously, that. he wasn't into best human efforts. It was only the UCI sanctioned. But for that for that chronology, you, you competed in '92, and then you got the um, your first pro contract in the continental on the, on the continent. Sorry, with with Gan in '93. So was that was that already in the offing, or was that driven by the fact that you'd reached this success? Gan were interested suddenly to give you a contract because they'd seen you. Well, yeah. I never wanted to turn pro, really, um, because I rode. I was a time trialist and um, that looked really scary and really hard and they do a hundred race days a year and, and I didn't want any part of that really. Um, so I tried to ignore it because people don't remember, but uh, at Olympic Games were amateur and pro. Mm. So I tried to establish a situation where I could ride for a team and the team would be sponsored and I could carry on doing my thing and I'd go to the Olympic Games if you turned pro you were no longer eligible that changed in 96 I think it was the first one but I somebody was helping me manage all the business a guy called Peter Woodworth and he just said well basically what you're trying to do is stay the same until somebody 
knocks you off the top step. And that's all you can do where you can be carrying on doing the same thing. Or you can try something different and maybe go forwards, because obviously forwards in the world of cycling is the pro world. And if it doesn't work, you can step back to here. So he kind of reluctantly made me realise that I had no choice. So the the hour record in 93 was right, okay, we had a great 92. What are we going to do in 93? And that's when that came up and we decided that was going to be the project of the year to aim for, so still amateur. So I went for that and we purposefully did it to give it visibility. At the same time, the Tour de France finished in Bordeaux, in the Bordeaux velodrome, all on the same day. So we effectively had the world's press with sod all to do and we gave them something to watch uh, and it nearly was disastrous because it was just so hot so incredibly hot um it, it really affected the result but that's when roger leger turned up he came off the race watched that and uh, and then by the end of the year we were having a conversation and and off we went but it's also really disastrous because graham O'Brien had suddenly so you're kind of i don't know how would you how would you class graham in terms of um nemesis or kind of absolute cheerleader best mate and vice versa how did how did that relationship play out then to now yeah uh, because then i was um insecure rather unpleasant 20 odd year old and uh, and i was threatened by graham obrey um, mm. and so i was irritated but well, i was irritated by the fact that he chose oh he's doing it that day so i'll do it the week before and you know we put so much effort into this um and it, you know i wasn't generous enough at the time to go but he was capable and he did. Um, and he was the first true innovator. I mean, I got the plaudits for it with Lotus Bikes. Graham O'Brien was the courageous guy. He was the guy who changed the world of pursuit cycling twice. He was the one who had the courage of his own convictions and said, well, I'm going to do this. And every the world just, just took the mickey out of him, including me, uh, because I was threatened. And he looked at the demands of the event. The first person to not look at the history of the event, he looked at the demands of the event and did what was right and put up with all that noise and proved it. And we had to copy him, you know, for a short period of time, I was actually looking at this position and went to explore it with a sour look on my face. And then the, the, that got banned. And, um, and so Graham went, okay, I'll go like this. You know, that, that guy was amazing. I never got the full credit for, for, for what he did. So my, my opinion of him now, uh, I've even apologized to him since it's very different to, to, to what it was then. So, so he was just uh, incredible. Would you say Graham's the most important person in your career then? Because he was the guy that... Uh, because it, you see it so much in sport and you, if you have someone who's there alongside you doing what you're doing and maybe a bit better sometimes, it pushes on the sport so much more. Look at Messi and Ronaldo right now in football. So without Graham there, you wouldn't have been tempted to do the Superman or to do the Tuck or to tit for tat hour record there's no way that i would have done that without graham you know i didn't mm-hmm. invented it i i um i copied you know i adopted best practice um and in fact we almost didn't do that because i didn't want to do that because i thought it looked after we did a series of bike tests prior to the 96 hour record uh, and for the individual pursuit and the last thing that we tried was a pair of handlebars that we'd had made uh, for track testing to look at different bikes and different equipment and you know, what was the best thing to do? Um, and within a couple of laps, I thought, oh, no. Uh, I hadn't even looked at the data. I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to do it. It was so much quicker. And the, the irony was I got more out of it than Graham because I've got uh, uh, very narrow hips, rounded shoulders, short legs, long body. 
So it was absolutely perfect for me. Um, whereas Graham's actually quite a big guy with wide shoulders. Yeah. So I actually got more out of it than he did, but no way would I have done that without his influence. So I think like most things in life, really, you um, the, there's things that an added ingredient that without that, this thing wouldn't have been made. Um, and the other was Peter Keane. You know, I think it's a person whose name that we don't talk about because he isn't in the magazines, but he revolutionised British sport and no one will ever know who he is. He invented a language of training that didn't exist and then quickly got adopted in Italy and elsewhere and other people were credited with it. But he came up with a language. He transferred um, uh, pulse and power into descriptive bands of training and then recommended, you know, he, he, he took sports science and packaged it in a way that people could understand and utilize. Never got credit for that. Uh, and in a sense, the Olympic Games in 92, it, it sounds it sounds a bit um, uh, like false modesty, but uh, it isn't. Uh, I was just the vehicle that did something to get Peter Keane the credibility he needed that when lottery funding came along five years later, and they went, great, lots of money. What do we do with it? Because we've never had money before. And somebody put the hand up and said, I've got a plan. And they gave it to Peter Keane and he set up the world-class performance program and he employed Dave Brailsford. Um, and then you follow that chain and it's Peter Keane that's the linchpin actually. Um, mm. of, of everything he's the person that runs all the way through and his story isn't told so that's yeah so so where is peter now are you still in he, he's steadfastly uh, avoiding work <laughs> he um he like all people they do something successful and then you kind of go okay i've done that now what and there's they have lost periods um, self-included um, and peter went off to work for lucas aid set up their academy of sport and what's that peter whatever I want it to be. And he never worked out what he wanted it to be. And then he uh, ended up at UK Sport. So he basically took the the plan for British cycling and scaled it again. So what we did, he scaled to British cycling. Um, and that was, I was his test case and he, he set up that. And then he scaled it to UK Sport across all sports. So he's the architect behind UK Sport structure of funding and the ruthlessness to say, listen, this is about gold medals. That's what we're paid for. So that's the only question we ask. Is this the best spend to get the most gold medals? The end, uh, and and everything followed that. So, and after he did that, he works uh, at a lecturer, senior lecturer at Loughborough University. But right now, he's effectively retired, just kicking around, and not really committed to anything. Um, and in some ways, I think he's won. <laughs> he's escaped, yeah. but uh, I suspect he'll get sucked back in at some point. Because that's the thing. So you you um, retired from professional cycling uh, in two thousand two thousand and one around then. And you didn't escape because you got sucked straight back into it with UK Sport that then became British Cycling working on the kind of design-led side? Yeah, only from a distance. I went off and, uh, because we condensed time a little bit, but I went off and uh, wrote for a scuba diving magazine and and, uh, and loved the idea of retiring. Uh, but I was bored out of my tree in three weeks. So, you know, that I, I have to go and do something else. Um, and Peter was then running British Cycling and, and said, listen, we're having a, an issue with this one guy who's like silver medal standard in the world. And he's so close and he's talking about binning it all and going to France. And we don't know what the situations are like over there now. So we're a bit worried. Will you have a word with him? And that ended up being Bradley. So he became, um, I was actually engaged first to, to coach his coach, Simon Jones at the time. So I came back in there. So he got me sucked back into the world of cycling, really. Um, and then I became head of coaching and set up that, that structure there. Uh, and that's when I bumped into the R&D programme, 
which was absolutely amazing experience. I mean, incredible. Somebody says, listen, here's a, here's a budget. I think I had about half a million quid. Uh, go and explore and see if you can make people go faster. You've got four years. And at the end of it, we don't have to have any commercially viable product. It's just like unbelievable um, period of my life. Really enjoyed it. And then that ended in 2012. Uh, quite literally drove away from the velodrome in London 2012 and left it all behind. And that was quite exciting. Um, but I'd also overlapped into the world of transport. Um, so I could just see all the logic of, why the hell aren't we doing this? I'd ended up on Newsnight in 2012. And I'd been asked about cyclists and helmets and shouldn't they be licensed and all the rest of it. And I realised the amount of ignorance that was out there. Um, because of the novelty of my background, I gave, was given a platform to speak and go on the BBC sofa. So that occupied the next few years and it just grew into, uh, into where I am now. Uh, and what's coming next, which I'm not telling you about. <laughs> which is the next mayor of Manchester when Andy Burnham becomes leader of the Labour Party. No, we can't talk about that at the moment. But, <laughs> um... I think Andy is... Um, well, how I ended up in Greater Manchester was by a British cycle, a great group of people there and said, right, we're not getting any traction with, uh, with, with national government. They won't take the risk. The political courage isn't there. What do we do? And somebody on the team, Kirsty McCaskill-Baxter, used to work with Andy Burnham at DCMS. And she said, he's going to be the first mayor of, uh, Metro Mayor of Greater Manchester and he should have a cycling commissioner and I think it should be you and I'm going to ring him up. So she did. And um, I, he very quickly phoned me up and said, listen, will you do the job? He said, let me think about it. And I spoke to Andrew Gilligan, who was yeah. Boris's cycling commissioner. London, yeah. Um, now his senior transport advisor in government in number 10. And I said, listen, what do we need? And he said, you've got to have two things. You've got to be talking for him. You've got to answer directly to him. You have to be talking for him and you've got to have control of the cash. So I went back to Andy and said, it's got to be your mission that I'm delivering Andy and I've got to have control of the cash if I'm going to have an influence. And without hesitation, he went, yep, yep. And if it gets messy, I will back you. And then I thought, oh shit, I've just cornered myself. So I ended up in a job um, I didn't even know I wanted, didn't know anything about, and got immersed in transport then for the next four years, which has been fascinating. And without wishing to sound melodramatic, again, it was, uh, I consider it a really good use of life. You know, if you can change a region and by doing so change a nation, that's pretty cool. So that's, I mean, it kind of, you, you won't tell us what your next chapter is, um, but I'm sure that you know already by the sounds of things. But to, I don't know, people that you, you inspire, which I am one, one of those people, there are many people that will be listening to this who you have been massively inspirational for. What are those moments in life where you, you could have gone one way and you went the other and it led to being where you are now? And how, how, do you, how, do you, how does one recognise those moments and make those important decisions to make this incredible stepstone of a life that you have have done changing things along the way in a broader remit of cycling yes but in lots and lots of different ways and changing the way that a young person like me approached a sport changing the way that a country looked at its own sporting achievements and where it invested money and now changing a way where a country actually looks at how it's going to live and organize itself as a society 
Can you nail any of those linchpin moments? I can give you an approach as opposed to an answer because everybody, you know, could you just wrap this up into a nice, simple, you know? Yeah. <laughs> after, the, after the 2008 Olympics, people wanted to come and visit British Cycling, and they expected something like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. You know, is this this is the this is how you do it? And they walked into a room just full of lots of desks and people, and it looked just like my office. Um, and success is not necessarily how it looks on the films or how you imagine it is. But there, there are, I would say suggest there's some principles behind it. Very early on, again, via Peter Keane, I was taught, because I'm academically barren, so I, I missed out on the whole school system. Um, I never went back to my high school to pick up exam results. Um, I, I just didn't interest me. So I missed out on a bit, some a tool, if you like, that other people probably consider normal, the ability to reflect. So we'd have an evidence-based idea. I am going to link this together. An evidence-based idea for something, be it a training program or the whole year's plan or whatever it is. And that gave the enthusiasm to go out and do it. And then we'd do it. And then we'd rip it apart. And usually there'd be a gap. This is what we wanted to happen. This is what actually happened. Wow, why is there a gap? What do we need to do differently? And reflect on that. And that, that reflective practice is essential. And in that reflective package, uh, that moment of of looking backwards, be it the meeting you've just had, the day you've just had, whatever it is you set out to do, uh, or, or looking forward to what you're going to do next. H- how do you feel about that? Because your gut tends to see, your gut feel, you tend to see things that you haven't even articulated or, or able to verbalize yet. But how do you feel about it? Does it excite you? Are these people you want to work with? And they're the most important things. Never chase money. Never chase money. Money does not make you happy. Uh, Having a purpose makes you happy. And so you bump into things and there isn't a pattern for it other than don't do things that you don't believe in. Um, And that seems to be working quite well up to now. Um, And if people have got confidence in you, what would you need to do the job? Ask them for that thing and be prepared to walk away if you do, if you can't get it. So it, it's self-honesty, I suppose, if you wanted to boil it down into anything, being, being self-honest um, and do what makes you feel good, what feels right. So campaigning and people talking about, you know, me not wearing a helmet, whatever. I've looked into this for 20 years and I believe in this thing and I know it's right. So I can take the noise because I genuinely believe in it. Um, and I think that belief is... Is, is everything so maybe that's helpful maybe it isn't but um do what you believe in and what makes you feel good not necessarily what's easy <laughs> and being brutally brutally honest with yourself then what was one thing that you tried to come up with with your half million pound budget um with, over those four years to try and go faster that just didn't work and you're like why why on earth did we try that in the first place that's probably wrapped up in the part of the answer, which I've forgot for the last one is you've got to be prepared to fail. And it's incredibly liberating and not just be prepared to fail. You have to accept that you are going to fail and you're mm. going to fail a lot. Uh, but you can't have, if you've got, you've test a hundred things and two of them work, then you can't just go, well, how do we just get those two? No, the other 98 are part of delivering that too. It is inescapable, accept it. And that's really quite liberating. So when you were talking about making choices, you're going to get some wrong and that's okay. You know, that's okay. 
It's just part of a process. And like everybody else, you probably look backwards and go, the things that make you cringe are the things that you got the most out of that have changed things going forward. It's the biggest... The things that make us change the most in life are the painful ones, not the ones that went well. Um, and, I, and the same was in R&D. So we mm. tested sequins. Uh, we tested uh, <laughs> fair. Uh, we, you know, that's just in terms of material. We, we, uh, we tried to pursue a position rig. So we look at positions in a wind tunnel without a bicycle. So we could just look at position alone. But we, we spent hours and hours doing this thing and realized that every time we, we move the bike around, the equipment that holds you in that position is affecting the test. And so it's not a real result. We did, oh, here's my best one. Um, in the first Olympic cycle, 2004 to 2008, we tested just under 10,000 different materials on mm. uh, on a tube to, to hone it down to find the best materials. And, and we went through this massive process. So two years of intensive experimentation, one year of prototyping, half a year of production is roughly how it went. And right at the end of this, I was writing a lecture um, or rather an update for everybody at British Cycle and what we'd been doing. And I was sitting next to my wife in bed and typing this thing and she's reading the magazine and said, God, do you realise we've done 10, tested 10,000 different types of material? And she went, all right, you tested them wet. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you're always wet when you're riding a bike. No. So we went and tested some materials uh, and, and sprayed them down, completely changed the results. So we effectively validated two and a half years of work um, based on the, based on one comment. Yeah, so that was uh, that was quite significant. <laughs> and so what you're actually saying is your wife is responsible for all those gold medals and the cycling British cycling success. They're, they're the lessons that you learn. I mean, what to take from that if you want to reflect on it, that ignorance is a marvellous thing. Yeah, because you 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 ask questions that experts don't ask. Never ask an expert to innovate. That was an Einstein quote, because mm. they know what you can't do. Um, and so we had people in our team that knew the ones that made a big steps forward in R and D were the ones who didn't know anything about cycling, but they knew mm. about aerodynamics and went, oh, big ugly lump, about fifty k's an hour. Well, clothing is pretty much all you can do to manage the drag. Really obvious to me. Well, not when you're a cyclist. You know, mm. why do you use bars that are 42 centimetres wide? Because we do. Why don't you use really narrow ones? I don't know. You know, it's, it's like, oh, my God, that's really embarrassing that we've never even asked that question. So if you like the question from Sally, taught me to value ignorance. Chris, I, I appreciate we've, we've overstepped our hour because it's been an excellent conversation. But we do like to finish these conversations with a few quick fire questions. So we can learn a few, you know, our, our listeners can learn some some action. So the first one you referred to, so we'll start off with this one. So you referred to your passion for diving and that you used to actually write for a diving magazine. But how long can you hold your breath for? About two minutes. Uh, what did you eat before your first hour record attempt? No idea, but almost certainly porridge. <laughs> um, cyclists always win weird prizes. What's the weirdest one that you took home? body weight in chocolate and i won three stages 210 kilograms of chocolate in the doping libre um but i will add that i never got to take it home it all disappeared and i never found out who got it or why I'd, yeah i'd be i'd still be livid about that um first time you cried because of cycling probably when i quit um 
Yeah, probably when I quit. Is the UCI a force for good or for bad? The UCI is a force. <laughs> very, di- very diplomatic. Um, when was the last time you rode um, a TT bike? Um, I was going to say the last time I rode a bike race, which was the hour record, but that was the athlete's hour. So it will have been my last pro bike race. And I have no desire to sit on one again. But in that, on that, if you turn up at your local 10, what time do you reckon you could hit? Well... It's kind of mooting. There's, there's no way. I'm, I said when I retired, there will never be another number on my back. Uh, and it turned out to be metaphorical because I've done some sportifs. But um, I, I'd probably be, I don't know, low 20s. I'd be me at the moment. Um, now, these are a couple of uh, quotes that, I mean, you might turn around and say, I never said that. That's the internet playing tricks on you. Um, but can you give me the context of them? Uh, so the first one is, it's the only race in the world where you have to get your hair cut halfway through. Yes, Tour de France, yeah. It's a circus. I don't want to be one of the clowns. Paris-Roubaix. And how are your memories of Paris-Roubaix? Well, I, I could just see the risk to people. I think we just had a couple of years of very wet Paris-Roubaix. And I saw people, I saw the fantastic spectacle. I knew that the audience figures went up by about 50% when it rained because people wanted to see the blood. And, um, and I saw people wipe out entire careers and seasons by falling in Paris-Roubaix. But mostly it's because I was a coward. <laughs> um, and uh, finally on the quote, uh, just two athletes took the time to thank the R&D team personally. I was in my book about the R&D programme when I finished in 2012. Um, so the last few quick quiet fire questions are, uh, in your professional career, who was your favourite teammate? Well, I think I had two. I'm going to dodge that one. I had uh, Jens Voigt, who extended my career by two years, who steadfastly, insisted on finding the positive in any situation including including riding in the snow in the age past on the age um he would just laugh about shooting himself um and eros poli who who also just put everything in perspective is a beautiful italianness sitting in a gruppetto grinding up a mountain look around look at the beautiful day we just ride easy up here we'll make the finish and the time cut no problem and uh, as a very intense, scared young man, that was uh, invaluable. How about your uh, worst roommate? Uh, I'm not going to tell you that one, but, but <laughs> suffice to say they farted a lot. <laughs> um, and I know you can't, it's hard, you, you shouldn't rank your kids, but rank gold, yellow, rainbow. Gold, yellow, rainbow? You, you should, they say you shouldn't you know, have a favourite, but if you had to rank gold medal, yellow jersey, Rainbow jersey, how would it? Yes, I thought you were talking about my kids. No, you? so yeah, I was like, you've not got alternative. There's no one called Rainbow Boardman that we know. <laughs> um, I think um, I've, I've obviously been asked this question an awful lot, um, and I um, I do avoid it, it to a degree. But gold, without a gold medal, nothing else would have happened. And it's uh, it's an iconic figure in the true sense of the word iconic. And you go into a jungle in Brazil, and somebody knows what you're talking about mm. within the sport of cycling. The yellow jersey in the Tour de France is everything, you know, from a professional point of view, from the hardest challenge. That is the unofficial world championship. Um, and I think it's got to be that. And rainbow jerseys are just special, aren't they? They're just, uh, it's a, it's a something of a privilege to wear them. And it's a, it's a relatively small club still and, and a privilege to be in it. And finally, for me, uh, on a scale of one to 10, how much better would cycling be if, you and Graham O'Brien hadn't got all of the really fastest positions and the fastest bikes banned. Yeah, I'm going to dodge that one as well, really. I think it would have been very different. 
uh, and the bikes now, like supercars in F1, where they, you know, they 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 were originally sucking them to a floor with a fan, and they stopped it for safety. And so, by banning that, they actually stimulated innovation, and the cars now are faster than they were then. And vice versa with bikes and bike riders now, they're much faster than we were then, um, because they were forced to innovate. So, I would just say it would be very different. And our last one is uh, Liverpool or Manchester. I don't follow football. I mean, that is a serious admission to make from where I live in the world, but I just, I would love to love football. So many people get so much out of it. I just do not follow it. If I followed any club, it would be Tranmere Rovers because I used to live by that and they used to keep me awake regularly. There you are, ladies and gentlemen. That was Chris Boardman. I reckon soon to be Sir Chris Boardman at some point because... I would say Lord Lord Boardman. I can quite imagine him, in all seriousness, actually being um, given a, a House of a House of Lords seat as an expert in his field. What do you reckon the next step is? Do you reckon I I can see him in a national government position? Yes. Um, I'm always impressed by Chris Boardman as, and there's a there's a lot of examples in this in in sport of he's such a perfectionist, and he's that whatever he turns his hand to, he seems to have success with, whether that be being the best time trialist in the world for like a three-year period in the early 90s that he won an hour record and won the world first ever time trial world championships and won prologues at the Tour de France and, and Olympic golds. Then he's the best R&D specialist and developer of a, a national cycling body in terms of what he did with Team GB at, Beijing, London. Yeah. And then now he's turning his hand to government and politics and it's like he's making it look easy again. Yeah. <laughs> he's one of those incredible people who, I th- you know, that's exactly what he's driving at when, he's, when we're talking about how, how to be successful. Someone that can take a problem, um, dismantle it and apply himself to it in, you know, to the best of his ability and isn't worried that maybe he isn't the most able, not to say he's not able, but that's not holding him back, you know, like a lot of us in life. You go, I, I just couldn't do that. That's just a bit too hard. As opposed to being like, I could maybe do 80% of it. Let's give it a crack. But also within that, really dismantling that problem, working out the constituent parts, then how you rebuild those parts into a solution to that problem. And he said that. I mean, people, lots of people listening to this will have read various things, biographies, autobiographies about Boardman. And he routinely points to his pro career, which was pretty short, right? 93 to 2000, um, all with GAN that then became Credit Agricole. And in 1998, he was officially diagnosed with having a kind of form of osteoporosis, which could have been treated with testosterone. Testosterone is a banned substance. The UCI wouldn't grant the equivalent of a TUE, a therapeutic use exemption. So he wasn't able to take testosterone. Ironically, when probably a lot of people were taking (laughs) testosterone. Um, And, you know, he he wouldn't have had to look very far to get some. No, exactly. (laughs) Just over his, just to his left. Um, But, but, um, but yeah, he, you know, and he looks back on that and says, I was, I was the guy that I was pretty good, but I wasn't just like the most mad raw talent. I had to work every step of the way. And I think as much as he says, you know, when I was a younger man, I was very focused and I think he even used the word arrogant. We know that about high flyers, whether they're sports people or people 
in academia or government you are you have to be arrogant and and narrow focused to achieve your goals um but i think he he's learned from a young age by the sounds of it just he had to apply himself and disregard any other doubts any other people and just say to himself i think i can do this and this is how and then just go about doing it he's it's the belief thing like it is it's a hum i hate to use that horrible cliche it's a horrible cliche isn't it it's a humbling experience but it's a humbling experience talking to someone who you can just see has insane belief and I was almost sorry just going off on my one about my love of Boardman but something that I, we didn't mention and because it just felt like it was just wrong to do so but I'd kind of like to point to it was you know his mum both his parents were cyclists his mum was killed by a driver who was convicted of dangerous driving in 2016 and the people that watched the Tour de France would have seen him just suddenly duck out of the commentary and didn't kind of resurface and to my knowledge I've never heard him speak openly about that in an angry fashion he's talked about it um, and this is happening to a guy who is involved in sustainable transport and changing the way that we move about cities and towns and everything else and here is cast iron reason to you could get on a soapbox and bang that drum go look this is exactly what i'm talking about and and hound the guy and really compound the situation and somehow he's just stoic enough to have somehow carried on not wanted to run away but also not become uh re- very adversarial yeah. in the way that he approaches the politics it's a huge testament to his character isn't it huge. it's incredible man it's absolutely incredible and mm. uh, he is yeah he's a very impressive man to talk to and just so passionate and so eloquent on so many topics and you could it's the sort of thing you could you could talk for hours about so many different things you could really dial into you know time trial positions and do a whole hour on just you know what what you know the superman versus the tuck and yeah in the same way you could do a whole hour hour on sort of um dutch roundabouts and implementation in in Oldham, <laughs> <laughs> what, make, what makes a, what makes a Dutch roundabout? Do you go and sort of up over the top, then back round, then down? I don't. Is it that they called them? Are they called Millie Holland roundabouts, where there's the the bike lanes basically have priority and go off to the side of the roundabout? Oh, uh, okay. And they wanted to implement them in, yeah. in London, and they look they look quite complicated. But let's wrap this episode up, James. Yeah. Um, hope you enjoyed the Boardman conversation i thought it was really good i really did i do I really so, did. so myself um again like share review this podcast it helps massively if you do do that um because then people take us more seriously most importantly ourselves but in the meantime join us again in two weeks time where we'll have another guest and we'll be talking about other stuff in the world of cycling um and yeah james i'll see you in a bit mate you will 